This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. And I'm Charles Feldman. Governor Gavin Newsom moving to get a tougher line on oil and gas production in California. But how much pushback will he get from a very powerful industry? We'll go in-depth. The Pentagon and American intelligence agencies say climate change is one of the biggest national security threats we're facing. Why is that? We'll try to get some answers. And former President Trump hopes to become a social media tycoon. For many LAUSD students, the pandemic was a lost year. What's the district doing about that? There's a labor movement percolating at Starbucks in Buffalo, New York. Could grind the coffee giant's business plan to a halt. And the first scientific proof that Vikings were the first European settlers in North America. But we start with new rules for oil and gas wells in California. State Senator David Min is a Democrat representing the Orange County Coast communities. That includes Huntington Beach. He's also a member of the Senate Energy Utilities and Communications Committee. Thanks for being with us. So very briefly, what the governor wants to do with the oil and gas industry is what? Uh, What he wants to do is to stop new permits for new drilling onshore and then uh, create 3,200-foot setbacks uh, where there'd be a high degree of regulation within 3,200 feet of any onshore uh, oil that, and in particular those that are uh, drilling operations that are near schools and churches and uh, hospitals and residences. What is that 3,200 feet going to do for people? Well, it, it could make it very difficult for a lot of the oil operators to continue operating. And so if it goes through as planned, it, it will probably remove a lot of those oil operations that are, you know, plaguing people's neighborhoods that are potentially causing public health issues in those neighborhoods. And what kind of public health issues are we talking about? And do we know that they are connected to the oil and gas? Uh, you know, and again, I'm not a scientist, uh, and this is the governor's proposal, but, but you know, there, there are clear documented effects between, you know, say, some of the pumping that happened, the fumes, and, and say, heightened levels of cancer and other types of, uh, say, you know, uh, new, newborn baby damage, uh, birth defects, uh, things like that that happen. Uh, and, of course, when there's oil spills, as happen. Anytime you have drilling, you're going to have spilling. Uh, you know, th- you end up with effects in the neighborhoods as well. So uh, I-, I think that New- Governor Newsom here is-, is looking primarily at the public health effects here and saying that, you know, we-, we, need- we need to make sure that people are not affected as far as their health uh, by the drilling that occurs throughout the state. So this is for new oil and gas wells. You did mention that existing ones might be affected. Is that because there would be new oversights or new regulations still on, on what's being emitted or something along those lines? Yeah, and so I, I think the governor announced that what he's looking to do is to have uh, new requirements for safety systems, emissions detections, uh, capturing of any vapors or, or gas leaks that might occur, uh, you know, and other types of regulatory oversight that will make it a lot harder for um, those folks to operate, uh, but also provide meaningful protections for people in the neighborhood. Okay, so if I were in the oil or gas production business, I'm guessing that I might be sitting there looking at that press release or listening to uh, the governor's news conference, and I'm thinking, oh, no, that's not going to happen. This is a very powerful industry. You know that. They've pushed back really hard over the past few decades, years. Are you confident that this time this measure will go through? You know, I, I'm not a soothsayer, so I, I don't want to make any predictions. Uh, you know, obviously, we had a big oil spill affect my coastline. Um, you know, maybe the mood is changing. We, we know that big oil is a formidable opponent. And even last year, 
Uh, they were able to prevent a lot of important environmental bills from either coming to a vote or preventing them from succeeding when they came up for a vote on the floor. Uh, so I, I think, you know, I don't want to underestimate their ability. Uh, I'm, I'm a freshman. I just started this year. So I've been here a hot minute and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm still figuring out the politics. Uh, so, you know, I, I don't want to predict what might happen. Uh, I, I know that there does seem to be a shift in the mood. Uh, you know, I think because of climate change, because of, you know, some high prominence oil spills and other disasters we've had around the country, including the Huntington Beach oil spill, uh, it, it does seem like maybe there's a, a moment where things are changing. But, uh, you know, people have said that in the past, too. So all, all I can do on my end is continue mobilizing. And as you know, I think um, I have proposed a I, I'm announcing that I will be introducing legislation in January to end all offshore drilling uh, off the coast of California. Welcome to freshman year. State Senator David Min, Democrat representing Orange County, the coast communities, including Huntington Beach. What a way to begin. (laughs) Coming up, the biggest national security threat facing the U.S. might not be China, might not be Russia, might not be ISIS. So what is it? Listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson, I'm Charles Feldman. Still to come, Pfizer's clinical trial data for the COVID vaccine booster is out. Uh, first glance seems pretty promising. LAUSD has a major, complicated game of catch-up to do for students that fell behind during the pandemic. We will also talk about that. Right now, the biggest national security threat facing the U.S. likely is not, not coming from another country or even a terrorist group. So where's it coming from? Aaron Sikorsky directs the Center for Climate Security, previously served as deputy director of the Strategic Futures Group at the U.S. National Intelligence Council. Thanks for being with us. So if uh, not from another country, if not from a group like uh, ISIS, where's it coming from? Well, it's coming from climate change. Thanks for having me today to talk about this. And the the real challenge with climate, though, is it's not just climate alone, but climate will make threats from other countries and from terrorist groups worse. Yeah, take us through some of what these reports are saying. And some people have talked about this for a while now, and I'm sure you're one of them, but now the government seems to be catching up. But this is everything from conflict within nations, between them, migrations. It's like across the board. Yeah, exactly. Climate change will be shaping the national security landscape. So really, there isn't a threat that the U.S. faces that isn't affected by it. It can cause uh, greater tensions over access to resources like water, for example, or uh, food challenges. Um, It can uh, create migration challenges, too, within countries as folks lose their livelihoods due to changes in agricultural production. They move from rural areas to the cities, overwhelming cities, overwhelming governments that are already strained because of, say, the COVID-19 pandemic or other other issues. So there really isn't a part of the world where this isn't a challenge. And even, you know, out there in California, where we've seen the the fires uh, this summer, where U.S. military bases there have had to evacuate because of the fires. They've had to uh, curtail some training days because of poor air quality or divert to having to fight the fires. So it affects military readiness and our security here at home as well. And yet, and yet, uh, China, for example, I've been reading, I mean, they're not really going out of their way to uh, reduce uh, their emissions from uh, uh, carbon-causing pollutants. Uh, The U.S., frankly, isn't doing a lot. Uh, President Biden's uh, plan uh, is already being reduced greatly, and some of the cutbacks reportedly include some of the things that might have helped mitigate some of the impact uh, on the environment. So the prognosis doesn't seem good. 
Yeah, I think the challenge with, with climate change and national security is you have to be able to do two things, right? First of all, you have to be able to adapt to the changes that are already coming, because even if we cut all emissions tomorrow, there will still be baked in right uh, temperature rise and risk over the next 10 to 20 years. But then, as you point out, for the second half of the century, if we don't cut emissions, then absolutely the security risks are catastrophic. I mean, parts of the world are going to become unlivable due to temperature rise. We're going to see heat waves like we saw this summer happen on a more uh, frequent basis. And even countries, you know, in in the developed world are going to have a hard time managing some of these shocks. So taking action is critical. We've got the big climate meeting coming up in Glasgow uh, very soon here where countries are going to get together to decide what uh, what their commitments will be. And they really all need to agree to raise ambitions because it, it threatens security. Aaron Sikorsky directs the Center for Climate Security, previously served as Deputy Director of the Strategic Futures Group at the U.S. National Intelligence Council. Aaron, thanks. In this corner, Mark Zuckerberg. And in that corner, Donald Trump. This is KNX In-Depth, along with Charles Feldman. I'm Mike Simpson. And uh, repeating the breaking news, the uh, full House of Representatives, pretty much along partisan lines, has now voted to hold uh, Steve Bannon, the former aide to former President Donald Trump, in contempt of Congress. Whether or not any criminal charges will actually be brought against him and whether or not he is going to be prosecuted up to the Department of Justice. Uh, It wasn't Christopher Columbus. It wasn't settlers from Britain or France. Nope. Now proof it was the Vikings who were the first Europeans to make it to North America. Right now, though, he's been threatening to do it for at least a year, and now it's happening. Former President Trump, officially a social media executive, launching his own platform called Truth Social. Drew Harwell, tech reporter for The Washington Post, he's been poking around the early version of Truth. Uh, Drew, what's it look like? It looks a whole lot like Twitter, which, of course, Trump was obsessed with for months and months and and was very sad to be kicked off um, after January 6th. And so he's effectively made um, a carbon copy. Um, But I I think the big question is going to be whether anybody will follow him. You know, Trump is really trying to keep that megaphone alive online by creating something like this. And the company has a lot of money in it already. But uh, I'm curious whether the audience follows him or whether it's just one more sort of um, dead website along the road. Yeah, I I mean, he did try uh, to do this a while back, as you know. Uh, I think it was on his, what, Facebook page, maybe? Uh, So why is there any notion that this might even work when the other attempt didn't? Yeah, a couple of months ago, he created a blog that, you know, they said was a beacon of freedom that was going to be Trump's, you know, big step back onto the Internet. It lasted for about 29 days. Um, nobody really read it. And, you know, and on our reporting, you know, from talking to aides of him said that he was really upset that nobody was was reading him. He, you know, the last thing he wants to be is irrelevant. So what he wanted to in instead of a blog was make something much more snazzier, make this whole social network that people could create accounts, they could post their own stuff. And so it looks like he has finally done that. But from poking around, it looks like a very uh, ramshackle property that's online. Maybe they will improve it, but it's I, I'm not sure that's really going to win too many more people 
into the fold. But you know, this is uh, this uh, Trump has realized that um, attention is power, and the internet is uh, a huge sort of benefit for him, especially as we're going into 2024. Can he win enough people to follow him day by day, listen to what he's saying, win the win the narrative, and win people you know like me in newspapers who will be writing about him? So um, yeah, I, my, my, I'm curious whether it's all going to work or whether it's just going to be one more publicity stunt. Yeah. So user experience problems is one thing if they have to to improve it but also the things that are going against him which you mentioned before twitter already exists so we have twitter and people are on it just not him but what about the other networks i mean parlor was like hot for a second and then i think what it's kind of fallen off in downloads and then other people have tried and even some people from his circle have tried to to launch like conservative leaning social networks and those haven't really gone anywhere yeah, exactly. There's been a whole grab bag. Before there was Parler, there was Gab, and after Parler, there was Getter. And, you know, these are, <laughs> are extremely niche properties. I've looked at them. I'm sure you know very few people who use them. And people don't use them because they're echo chambers. Nobody wants to just talk to, to talk to themselves all day. And uh, so it's really hard to kind of get over that hump. And that's why, you know, Facebook and Twitter are so sticky. That's what, you know, that's what getting that networked effect of having all your friends and family and the people you want to hear from on one network, that's not something you can just invent overnight. So maybe that happens here. I mean, maybe we're just at the step of this new Trump media empire, but um, it's a long, it's going to be a long uphill road to take down these at this point, trillion dollar companies like Facebook. All right, but, and, uh, but Drew, let me yeah. ask him because you, you did mention that there is, you know, maybe not a trillion dollars, but that there is, you know, a substantial amount of money behind this. What what kind of money are we talking about? Do we know where it, it came from? If I tried to start something, you know, I'd raise like a dollar twenty five maybe. Where did the Lemonade money stand? <laughs> yeah. yeah, you can set one up out front. <laughs> exactly. Where did the money come from? Uh, the, we are still figuring that out now. And, you know, the way that they created this was they created this social network as part of this whole new company called Trump Media and Technology Group, which is itself a merger with another company called Digital World Acquisition Corp. It becomes very confusing and that's possibly by design. And, you know, we, we've been looking at this stuff for less than 24 hours and I can't truly make heads or tails of it just yet. But um, you know, we have seen a pattern of Trump's businesses, whether it's in airlines or hotels or stakes. Um, somebody's always sort of footing the bill. And a lot of this comes down to who can he get kind of in the invest in the investment uh, umbrella and and sort of fund this thing. You know, from from the standpoint of the business, they they just want Trump out front and center. As as much as he has framed himself as this um financial mastermind, we have seen many times that he has. Uh, his businesses have gone bankrupt. And so what he wants to do is just sort of be out there um, uh, doing the talking and letting the, the money be sort of cured by itself. But, um, you know, making a media company is not cheap. And uh, there are a lot of ways to screw it up. Um, and, you know, we've seen with other Trump businesses, it's not exactly easy to get advertisers to sign on for a Trump property anymore. I mean, unless you're really in the Trump circle, you, you have to worry about um, him saying something new and and uh, messing your whole business up. So um, he has clearly money to start this now, but if he has money to sustain it, that's going to be kind of the real next hurdle. Drew Harwell, tech reporter, Washington Post. Drew, thanks. When uh, we come back, it was, uh, by many uh, aspects, a lost academic year for some LAUSD students. So what exactly is going to be done about that?
This is KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. There were warnings, predictions throughout much of the last 18 months as the LAUSD campuses were closed down March of 2020. Remote learning was not going to cut it to keep pace with the academic progress that the students needed, and uh, it's looked like that's exactly what happened in a lot of cases. Yeah, there is uh, new data that shows that some LAUSD students now back in classrooms, their grades dropping, reading scores of elementary students dropping, and there are hundreds of thousands of students not meeting grade-level goals in reading and math. With us now is Nick Melvoin, who is a member of the LAUSD Board of Education. Nick, thanks for being with us. So, uh, you know, for many students, clearly it was a sort of lost year in many respects. Uh, so the real question is, going forward, what is going to be done about that? Yeah, well, first, thanks for having me. And, you know, I should note that we actually saw declines nationally in, in student achievement in the NAEP exam, which is administered every few years before the pandemic. And so it was, it's been alarming to some of us in education. But while this has been a really disruptive year um, or 18 months, you know, we can't forget that for students, this is, has disrupted three school years. We closed in March of 2020. We were remote for most of last year. And now, even though we're back in 100% of schools for in-person learning, it's still, uh, we're still kind of in, in the midst of this. And so uh, we need to be focused uh, with a laser-like focus on learning gaps and how to mitigate those. Um, that starts with, with assessments. It, it starts with making sure that we understand where students are as they come back to school, uh, and then working with our teachers and other support providers to make up for that lost time. But I think you know the first step is unfortunately that there has not been consensus on defining the problem. This data that we released and that the LA Times uh, reported on today shows there is a problem. I've been saying there is a problem. I, I think we could have predicted this um, when we did have to close schools because of this global epidemic. And so we need to acknowledge that uh, and now move forward by assessing students, figuring out how to support them, um, and then put resources where they're most needed in those high need schools, focus on early literacy, early education, and really start to catch kids up. In practice, though, what do you think it looks like? Let's say it's a fifth grade class. Does the teacher go back and try and teach some of the fourth grade stuff that the kids got on the computer? Or do you just go straight through fifth where you're supposed to be and then fill in the gaps along the way if you see people struggling and the concept's not there? It's a great question. And I don't think there's any classroom that a teacher will tell you is the same. And if you have a class of 25 students, you know, you might have a quarter of them that are above grade level right now, a quarter that are at grade level. And so we've been trying to infuse our classrooms and our schools with more people. Uh, we have our early primary promise, which is an early literacy program, where we're actually putting more bodies in schools to help pull out kids who are behind and catch them up while other students are on track. Um, we are using new curricula and we're trying to assess, uh, equip schools with, with curricula that enables them to uh, accelerate readers, if we're taking literacy, for example, who are reading at grade level, but then also catch those kids up. Um, and that's why we're also trying to get more time in seats. We have before school resources, after school resources. We ran our largest summer school program. We'll be definitely doing that next summer. We're encouraging schools to use some of the federal dollars that we're giving them to increase the length of the school day to just literally make up for lost time uh, with more time. We're also uh, focusing on high dosage tutoring, connecting kids with, with free tutors uh, before, after the school day on weekends to make up you know, um, their learning gaps and, and be really individualized and personalized. We're also trying to equip parents with the resources um, for them to be able to help you know, help with that homework and understand where their kids are. So uh, I think the short answer is we can't just say, oh, 
you know, we're gonna we're gonna skip out on those important assessments. We do need to go back and reteach, and teachers are working um, around the clock to figure out how to meet the needs of their individual students. You know, the 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 dropping in scores, uh, of course, was, was uh, across the uh, the spectrum, although disproportionately impacting uh, the black community, Latino community. What does that suggest to you? Because they obviously those communities started from a lower base to begin with before the pandemic. In worse shape now, not through the pandemic, we're not really over with the pandemic, but you know what I mean. Uh, but what does that suggest to you as an educator that needs to be done? Well, I think part of it is it, it highlights how much um, what happens outside of classrooms affects what's going on in classrooms. And what I mean by that is that this pandemic was not equally distributed and it, we, felt, we saw the effects exacerbated in high need communities. But even before those communities were racked with higher um, you know, death and hospitaliza hospitalization rates. We, we knew when we closed schools in March of 2020 that many of those kids did not have access to the internet, which is the equivalent you know, of not having a textbook. And it took LA Unified, despite really leading the country in getting kids equipped with a device and internet. It took us a few months. And so part of that gap being exacerbated is that you had kids on the west side of LA who were able to close school on a Friday and be online on Zoom on a Monday. And for other kids, it took, it took weeks. And then from there, we realized, well, a lot of kids, they might now have their computer from LAUSD, but they don't have a headphones, the headphones. And they, there are multiple kids in a one bedroom apartment or um, they have to take care of their siblings. So it really just showed how much what happens outside of the classroom affects the classroom. We're also prioritizing those schools uh, for hiring. Um, we, you know, my career uh, began as a teacher in Watts. And even then we had this rotating parade of teachers. It was very hard to have stability and we are seeing teacher vacancies and high need schools. And so uh, I actually have a resolution before the board next week to look at how do we prioritize those high need schools to make sure those kids have teachers because candidly, some of those, some of those students still have long-term substitutes or have had a few different teachers so far this year. Um, that's not unique to LA Unified. We're seeing a, a global shortage of education professionals, but it's not acceptable. Nick Melvoin, member of the LAUSD Board of Education. Nick, thanks. When we come back, Starbucks laser focused on Buffalo, New York, and it's not because of the snow. This is KNX In-Depth, Mike Simpson and Charles Feldman. Buffalo, New York, small band of Starbucks employees, and they are looking to kind of make history. They are in the middle of a union organizing campaign for Buffalo area Starbucks, and if it succeeds, well, it could really make a big difference for the way Starbucks deals with its workers coast to coast. We reached out to Starbucks to participate in the segment. Uh, they declined. But with us is Jazz Brissack, Starbucks barista in Elmwood, neighborhood of Buffalo, also a member of the Starbucks Workers United Organizing Committee. Jazz, thanks for being with us. So how would you describe how this is going for you guys so far? Thanks so much for having me. Um, I think, you know, it's I think from our side, it's going great. Um, more folks have been joining the organizing committee since we launched in late August. Um, but Starbucks is not happy about our union and has been swarming Buffalo with corporate from the president of Starbucks North America on down. And so every day now when we're showing up to work, there's a 
huge cycling presence of new corporate people and managers in our stores. And so what do, what do they do? Do they just kind of like hang around and try to look menacing? Type or, on their laptops yeah, and look they, at you. Right. Do they, do they take orders? What do they do? It's a mix. Um, some of them try to do trash runs. Some of them um, come on bar. Some of them um, have been investigating facilities issues. Um, like, you know, some things that maybe have gone unfixed for a long time and now suddenly justify or they claim to justify the presence of so many people in our stores. Um, And most of the stores have at least one or two um, additional store managers from out of state um, who have come in for 90 days, um, which is about the time frame that we're expecting the union vote to happen in. And what kind of effect is that having on you guys? Well, for one thing, it makes it hard to talk to coworkers and make sure that everybody has all the information that they need, especially with Starbucks pulling all of us into anti-union meetings um, about weekly um, because there's no space away from the floor or the back room to talk. And now those the floor and the back room are dominated by um, a corporate presence that wasn't there before. So Starbucks has always tried to present this image to the world of being a you know fairly progressive company with good relationships with its employees. I'm not even sure they call you guys employees, right? Aren't you like, I don't know. We're partners. You're partners. Okay. Uh, so now you have partners that are like hanging around when you don't really want them, right? Uh, so what is it that you guys want that Starbucks doesn't want to give you? I think, honestly, what we're seeing is a real battle for the soul of Starbucks, because like you're saying, they say they're a progressive company. I think they their whole mission and values um, upholds things like challenging the status quo and em- empowering partners. Um, but they have retained for years a anti-union law firm, Littler Mendelssohn, um, and they keep saying that Littler and not us, the actual partners, um, knows what the partner experience should be. So I think there's a lot of things that we would like to negotiate about and try to address from the fact that there's no seniority pay for long-term workers, meaning a coworker who's been there for 11 years was making 16 cents more than me, um, to scheduling or short staffing issues. Um, but I think the biggest thing is just that we need Uh, the ability to really sit down with corporate on an equal footing and truly engage in an actual partnership with power sharing instead of a partnership in name. So what's it like to be kind of on the forefront of this and having them, you know, doing what you're saying they're doing, but knowing full well that if you guys succeed, then there's going to be a whole bunch of other Starbucks across the country looking, looking at that. We're trying to win the right to organize for all baristas. There's over 8,000 stores and um, not one of them has a union right now. And we're hearing from partners all around the country who are also interested in organizing and trying to see what happens here. And I think if we can win the right to organize, organize even one store in Buffalo and get a union contract, then we can help um, raise this company and this industry up.
You know, you mentioned 8,000 stores. Some people might be asking the question, so why Buffalo? What, what brought it to a head in Buffalo? Buffalo is a very strong union town. It's also home to Spot Coffee, where baristas organized a couple years ago. Um, and we're lucky to have the backing of Workers United Upstate, SEIU, uh, behind us, which means that we have a union willing to take on Starbucks. So here comes the classic, if it's that bad, why do you stay question. There are other places that are looking to hire workers. There's a worker shortage out there. You know, I mean, I've worked at other places in this industry before. Starbucks is one of the better places. And I think we all came to Starbucks because, you know, it claims to embody um, progressive values. It claims to be one of the best work environments. Um, a lot of us have incredible relationships with coworkers and have a lot of love for this company. And I think instead of leaving it, we just want to make it the best it can be. Jazz Brissack, Starbucks barista, Elmwoods, a neighborhood of Buffalo, member of the Starbucks Workers United Organizing Committee. Jazz, thanks for talking to us. More in-depth to come. Another half hour is on the way. This is KGNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Pfizer ran a clinical trial on its COVID vaccine booster involving over 10,000 fully vaccinated people ages 16 and older. And the results, well, the booster shot proved to be nearly 96% effective against coronavirus infection compared with people who received only the first two vaccine doses. And this is important because it's the first real-world trial of vaccine boosters in people who aren't just over 65 or immunocompromised. Dr. Amesh Adalgis, senior scholar at Johns Hopkins University Center for Health Security. So, Doc, uh, pretty good. Yeah, yeah, the data does look good as it is, but th there's a big caveat to it, and that is how long does this protection last? Because <clears throat> when it comes to the COVID vaccines, what we're trying to do is prevent serious illness, hospitalization, and death. And we've seen in the above 65 age group, in those with high-risk conditions, a booster makes sense. There's still an open question of people uh, under the under the age of 50 or so whether or not they benefit very much from a from a, a booster vaccine if they have no other health conditions. And this tells us maybe this makes breakthrough infections less likely. But remember, they only followed the people out for a couple of months. Does that immunity then wane down again, and are you just kind of pushing breakthrough infections out into the future? Well, I mean, we have a, I mean, this was a, a clinical trial, but we do have a kind of real world trial going on in Israel, right? Because they've been giving boosters, I think, longer than any other country and to a more, uh, a wider demographic group than any other country. Are we seeing any troubling signs from there? It's not troubling signs. I guess the question with boosters is who benefits the most from it? And where is their, their strong value? And where is their marginal value? And to me, I think that chasing mild infections with boosters isn't probably the best use of the vaccine, especially these first-generation vaccines that uh, really don't provide much immunity in the nasal cavities. So these breakthrough infections are going to happen. And the question is, you know, should we be continuing to keep boosting to stop these mild infections that usually don't re require any medical attention? Or should we be thinking about better vaccines that, that prevent infection to a higher degree than these mRNA and, and the Johnson & Johnson vaccine do. So I think this is a controversy that played out. You saw that at the ACIP meeting on the Pfizer vaccine. 
a couple of weeks ago where the CDC director reinstituted a a recommendation that was voted down for younger people to get the the booster. That same debate is going on right now uh, with the CDC ACIP committee talking about Moderna and Johnson & Johnson. So this is an area of controversy in, in my field. Yeah, there's the medical explanation and arguments. And then I wonder, though, if it's complicated by just the practical and people out there. There's a whole bunch of people who are just so concerned with the idea of a breakthrough infection because somehow in their head, although everything shows it's it's likely going to be mild, that they're going to be the one that, that has a really bad case if something happens to them. So for those people, they want boosters. And so does it work to get one if it gets you through a few months? And then in the spring, if we're in a much better place than we even are now and things are getting better, then then they worked and there's no harm in, in putting one in your arm. There's, there's no harm in putting in one in your arm for most people. I think there are, there are always are side effects that you have to think about. But I, I think that the question is, you know, is it of, of strong value to be kind of boosting your way out of mild illness. And, and yes, there definitely are people who are trying to avoid breakthrough infections at all costs. And some of that may be because they're afraid. Some of it might beca- be because of the societal ramifications of a breakthrough, because you might have to, uh, you're going to have to isolate, you're going to have to, your contacts may have to quarantine, contact tracing, all of that. But I think that we, we really want to think about the fact that if we're trying to change the trajectory of this pandemic, trying to put it in our rearview mirror, it's not boosting of people that are fully vaccinated that's going to change that. It's getting first and second doses into people, and that needs to be the priority. Let me ask you about, uh, there's a, a very interesting difference between uh, giving shots to uh, young kids now uh, as opposed to adults, and that is with adults, uh, the family physician was cut out uh, of the equation, primarily because, as you know, the Pfizer shot, and to a little lesser degree, the Moderna shots required uh, a lot of very fancy uh, refrigeration in order to keep the vaccines you know, fresh, and doctor's offices, by and large, didn't have it. But I understand when it comes to these young children, uh, the Biden administration plan is to be able to have pediatricians give these shots to kids at their offices. So my question is, how is that happening? Is it a different uh, makeup of the vaccine? And, And if so, why can't they do that for adults so that an adult can go to their own doctor and get the shot? That's a really great question. And I think what what we're learning is that there are technological advances that allow the Pfizer vaccine to be stored in an ordinary refrigerator for some period of time. So it's going to require some logistics to to keep replenishing this, the supply and making sure that it doesn't get that it doesn't get wasted in in a, in a fridge or get spoiled in a fridge. But this is definitely something that many of us have said from the very beginning that enlisting primary care physicians, enlisting pediatricians, people who uh, people who are trusted, people who people people who have patients have a relationship with, is going to be one way to really encourage the vaccine hesitant to ask questions and get their questions answered by someone they trust, not somebody on television, not somebody on radio, but someone that they know, that someone that takes care of them all the time. And I think that was a, a mistake to not do that with the adult vaccination rate, because I know I do much better when I'm talking to a patient in front of me than I do when I'm talking to a patient on television or on the radio, because I think that that relationship or that ability to ask one-on-one questions really does have the ability to change people's minds. Dr. Amesh Adalja, Senior Scholar, Johns Hopkins University Center for Health Security. Okay, when we come back, the Vikings. No, it's not a ball team. It's the actual Vikings. They beat their European colleagues to North America by hundreds of years.
You're listening to KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492. That's how you remembered it, right? Because it rhymed. We learned it in school. Yeah, but it was full bunk. Yeah, because it was the Vikings. And <laughs> I mean, for years did... and years, people said, no, it wasn't him. It was yeah. the Vikings. They got to North America first. But could you prove it? Ah, and that's the question. And here to help us uh, answer that is Brigitte Wallace, who is a principal author of a study that did, Brigitte, write, uh, I guess, show scientifically what, what certainly uh, Norse people have been saying for a long time, that they were the ones, first European settlers anyway, uh, to reach North America way before people from Spain or Italy or, or anywhere else, right? Hello. Hello. Yes. Uh, this is Vegeta Wallace, but I am afraid I was not the principal author of the, um, the, the article. That was uh, the Dutch biologist, Michael. Uh, okay, so so our, our, our apologies, but, but you were a, I presume you were a part of the study, yes? Yes, I was. Okay, so, so you know a lot more than I do <laughs> about this. So let's talk about what you know. Uh, I, you know, it, it, as Mike pointed out when we began this segment, um, certainly it's been known for a long time uh, that uh, Norse people came to North America way before uh, people from Italy or Spain or anywhere else in, in uh, Europe uh, and settled. But what is uh, different that this study shows? It gives us for the first time one specific date when we know they were right there in northern Newfoundland. And what is the specific date and how did you figure it out? Well, you know, it wasn't I who figured it out. I just was a helper in this. But uh, it's a um, combination of radiocarbon dating and tree ring dating. Because as I understand it, uh, solar activity had an influence on the growth of trees at one point. You're you're a very modest woman, Brigida. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> because because I have a feeling you know a lot more than you you're letting on. <laughs> you, you do. Uh, I did. So. I, uh... Yes. Go ahead. So, uh, so let let's kind of walk through this, okay? So, uh, correct me where I'm right or wrong on this. Uh, so, you have people who were originally from from uh, uh, I guess Norway via uh, Greenland or perhaps Iceland. They then decide to to take to the the seas, and they lo and behold come across uh, uh, Newfoundland, what is now Newfoundland in uh, in Canada, and they do build a settlement, right? Yes, uh, they. Um, it, I don't think they were really thinking of colonizing at this point, uh, but they had just moved to Greenland 15 years earlier, and they were looking to see what would be good for the Greenland colony. And once they knew that there were lands west of Greenland, then they really wanted to explore that. And the voyages to the so-called Greenland, uh, Wineland, um, were really voyages of exploration and, and also to exploit what was there. And uh, they came across trees for one thing, because Greenland was almost treeless. So this was a very valuable resource for them. But they also, to their surprise, came upon grapes. So. Uh, 
they were familiar with grapes and they liked wine as much as anybody. <laughs> I bet they did. <laughs> I bet they did. Good people. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They um, the name after it and called it Vinland. And Vinland is a big area. It's not just a spot. We know they were in lots of meadows, but we also actually know that they went in farther south because they brought back uh, trees that have never grown in Newfoundland. And I mean, lumber became in form of lumber, I presume. And uh, also, they some American type of walnuts called butternuts, hmm. and they brought them back, and we found them together with Norse other deposits. Okay, so so they built the, the settlement, and and their stuff was there, and then some of the buildings kind of resembled what what they had before, and that gave us all the clues. And then there was something about the solar activity where now we can do the tests and date yeah. some of the wood, and that's how we, we figured it out. We being not us here, but the team. Exactly. And what we found at Lanzo Meadows was, among other things, a lot of wood uh, from just carpentry, from trimming trees and things of, of that nature. Uh, we found quite a bit of wood, and the neat thing with this new method is that this particular solar uh, activity because tree rings be, uh, are a tree forms ring it grows we can see it in form of tree rings when you cut the tree um, and um, they are regularly fairly just circular but in one case, when there was a particular type of solar activity, the rings went crazy and became kind of wiggled. Ah, so and and that's why you can and pinpoint the, the date. When, and that happened to all trees in the whole ah. world. Huh. And uh, uh, we know that happened in uh, 993. 993. Uh, yeah. Brigitte, so why didn't they stay in Canada because they didn't, right? I mean, they, they eventually left. Why didn't they, they came that far, they settled. Why didn't they just hang out? Well, you know, that's the way we think nowadays. But um, they had just settled in Greenland and started up from the very beginning. There was no store you could go and buy tools in um, over here, for one thing. In Greenland, you had to import it, many of the things they needed from Europe. And to get to the really useful things for them over here, which was lumber and maybe wine, but you could get that from Europe. And they needed many more things from Europe. So uh, whatever they could find here, so they went back to Europe because they couldn't get wine? Is you got to go to wherever the closest <laughs> wine is. That's to, the moral of the story. They had to think of the distances. They couldn't open um, up like the first wine store? They or? didn't have BevMo's no. back then. <laughs> it takes a lot of people to do things like that, to inform a colony. And the distance to Europe wasn't that great because you're very far north. You're close to the Arctic Circle. And then the distances in the east-west are not that long. 
but to Lanzo Meadows, it was just about as far as going back to Europe. And they could have many more resources in Europe where they could just go and buy them. In Vietnam, you couldn't. Yeah. Brigitte Wallace, the uh, advisor on this uh, study that uh, showed the Vikings uh, came by well before uh, Chris Columbus did. Brigitte, thanks for talking to Couldn't us. Couldn't get enough wine in Canada then. Keep the wine close. That's yeah. what we do. All right. That's In Depth for today. We'll be back tomorrow at 1 p.m.